Well, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9, and we will be there momentarily. Before we get there, though, I'm going to back up and read just a couple of chapters before that passage in Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 7, it gives a little bit of context for where we're going. It's a story of Stephen and Stephen's testimony against the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish faith leaders. Stephen is the first recorded Christian martyr, and he accuses this, the Sanhedrin of not being faithful to their God, which is why he's martyred. They don't receive that news very well. He accuses them of their complacency when Jesus was being crucified, and naturally, that just doesn't make them very happy. And so, I'm going to read just a bit of Acts chapter 7, and then here in a moment, we'll make our way to Acts chapter 9. Acts 7, starting in verse 54, says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, Stephen's testimony against them, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, this passage is important to us this morning because it shapes our understanding of Saul, who we're going to spend most of our time with this morning. This passage is our first encounter in Scripture with Saul when he is a young man. His presence in the story is ambiguous. We don't know exactly why he's there or what purpose he serves. Scholars actually don't really even debate why he might be there. They just acknowledge we don't know. There, there may be any number of reasons. He might have volunteered or been coerced to be a part of Stephen's execution. He might have been caught up in the spectacle of everything and the excitement and the, the energy of it. He might have volunteered to watch the council's coats in order to do his part in doling out justice. We, we just don't know. Uh, what we do know, though, is that this moment seems to have left an impression on Saul. It was formative in some way. When I was a kid growing up in Nebraska, I, I remember one evening my sisters and I were playing outside. We had a playground in our backyard, and my parents were sitting on the porch listening to the radio. And the radio was was telling about the weather, and the skies above us were turning a kind of ominous green. And if you have grown up in the Midwest, you know that color of green means there's a storm coming, and it's going to be a bad one. And so they're listening to the, the radio, and, and uh, we lived in a mobile home park then, and in our backyard was a big wooden pole with a siren on top. And whenever I talk about a tornado siren in upstate New York, I have to explain what it is because I find that there are people who don't know that in the Midwest, a siren goes off when there's a tornado nearby, when it's spotted on the ground or when there's patterns in the air. We don't have to worry about that so much up here, but, but there's sirens that, that go off there. And when you hear a siren, you know it is time to take cover. And so we're playing in that backyard, listening to the radio, and that siren right in our backyard starts going off, and, and it warns us, there is danger. This is, 
This is a crucial time. Take cover. And so I, I remember I was panicked, but my parents had a pretty good idea of what was going on. They, they had prepared for this moment, and, and I knew that running into our home wasn't a good option. It was a mobile home. It, it wouldn't hold up well in a tornado, and so we quickly loaded up into our van. And I remember my mom shouting to our neighbors, you can follow us. We're going to a safe place. And we drove to our church that was nearby where we spent the night in the basement as something like eight tornadoes swept through our community that night. And it was sunrise before we were able to go home. And I remember that drive home and my parents praying that our home was still intact. And we drove by um, utility company vehicles that were uh, turning off gas lines and, and shutting down electrical lines because homes had been knocked off their foundations and gas was leaking. Uh, we passed a, a mobile home that had rolled at least three times and landed on its roof. And when we finally arrived at our home, it was, praise God, it was intact. It was almost as we had left it. There was some of the skirt on the bottom that had to be put back up, but it was mostly untouched by the storm. But that night was so formative for me. I took so much away from it. A lot of that has stayed with me my whole life, mostly that the church was a refuge for my family and for my neighborhood in a time of crisis. Most of the people who shared the basement of that church with us that night were not members of our church. They were members of our neighborhood who came to our church for safety. And I remember that that night, the, the presence that a church could be in its neighborhood, just how powerful of a refuge it could be for people in the community. But I also remember that the pastor of the time was not very pleased that the doors had been opened to the community. It wasn't that kind of person he told us that he wanted to fill the church with. Those kinds of people weren't his target people, people, people like me who lived in those mobile homes who he assumed wouldn't be able to contribute or tithe. I remember my pastor was upset with my mom. It was her who opened the doors of the church to our neighbors and who made sure that people weren't inside those homes as they were moved from their foundations and rolling over. I remember visiting some of those neighbors in the coming weeks. We didn't, we didn't know all of them, but there was one in particular. Their, their home was yards away, but their deck was still intact, and they had stretched sheets over their deck to protect them from the sun, and we brought them meals and water as they tried to figure out what their next steps were. We cared about those people. My church didn't care about those people. One night when I was in second grade, I got to see the very best and the very worst of the church, all of the potential of the church and, and the very worst at the same time. And as an adult, I can trace some of my own missional tendencies, my own heart for the community to that night. It, it shaped me. And... And that's why this passage is so significant, because Saul, as a young man, observed what men in his community who were most passionate about defending their faith did, and it shaped him. Well into adulthood, it shaped him. In our youth, it can be difficult to see the difference between being passionate about defending our faith and being faithful. They can be very different things. Insisting that we're right in others are wrong. That's not faith, it's pride. Saul was very prideful. Saul's 
people were very prideful, but it must have looked to him as a young man as being faithful. In the next chapter, in Acts 8, it says that Stephen was buried and Saul began to persecute the church. He began his work as, as a persecutor of the church. In fact, the NIV translates it well. It says, Saul set out to destroy the church. That was his intention. He wanted to wreck this movement of God, this Jesus following. He was doing what the men of faith in his community had taught him to do. He was setting out to destroy. And that brings us to the passage that I invited you to turn to a moment ago, Acts chapter 9. We're going to read starting in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those words just in this moment has stood out to me. Brother Saul, he said. He calls him brother. This persecutor of the church, he calls him brother. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who called on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? The word of the Lord. And so Saul is breathing murderous threats. That's apparently an important detail in this story. He's already imprisoned Christians. He's, he's ripping them from their homes and placing them in prison. He was at least complicit in the murder of Stephen, and now he's breathing murderous threats. Do you know how we know he did that? We know that Saul breathed murderous threats because he posted them on Facebook. 
That's, that's where murderous threats get posted, right? Or, or murderous words or attitudes or opinions, we post them on social media. That's where we go to say the things that we'd never say in person, certainly never in the church, right? So you might be surprised to hear this, but archaeologists have actually uncovered some of Saul's actual Facebook posts, and I thought I might share a few of them with you today. Um, this one, wait, you said Christian? I thought you said easily manipulated and exceedingly gullible. Hashtag same thing, I guess. Saul's kind of negative, isn't he? Um, I might not be the smartest guy on the block, but at least I'm not following a crucified king. Hashtag hard terrain when you're dead. Yeah, that's not the that's not nice. If you are offended that I'm putting those filthy Jesus followers in jail, will you just delete me as a Facebook friend? I don't want to know you anyway. Saul's not a very nice guy. Those, those are some ugly posts. None of you have friends on social media who say that kind of thing, right? And, and certainly we wouldn't post those things ourselves. See, Saul had just finished posting the, uh, hitting the post now button on his cell phone when a light from heaven flashed all around him and he fell on the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, is that you, Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, I'm joking. Not really. There, there's no Facebook. There's no cell phone. Just God and a band of travelers and Saul. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. I'll be honest, every time I read this passage, I see myself 20 years ago. I was so sure of my faith. I had such certainty about who I was and who God was. I was young and naive and reckless and far, far too certain. And certainty can be such a dangerous trap, especially in our youth. Saul invoked God's name, but he worshiped an idol. He worshiped a God of his own making. He was so certain that he knew who God was but God was not who Saul envisioned at all. Saul envisioned a God who was proud of the work Saul was doing, a God who blessed the persecution of Christians, who delighted in the death of, of unfaithful heretics like Stephen. Saul envisioned a God who patted Saul on the back for his efforts to stop this Jesus movement. But Saul never stopped to consider that maybe he had things wrong. Saul thought that he was worshiping God I truly believe he was absolutely sincere about it. I, I don't doubt the sincerity of his faith even for a moment, and that's what concerns me the most about it, because he was sincere. He was absolutely certain, and he, all of the while, was worshiping an idol, a false god made in the image of his certainty, bound by the limitations of his understanding. He worshiped at the altar of absolutes, and he never questioned or considered that he might be wrong about anything. And oh, do I know I have been there. When I started my ministerial studies, I was convinced that, that I knew better than my professors, that, that the things they were telling me were wrong, and I had the right answers. I, I had answers for every question, and 20 years later, I have questions for every answer. I'm, I'd much rather be there, to be honest with you, filled with questions, filled with wonder, than, than still worshiping a God who was small enough and limited enough that I could possibly have Him all figured out. I learned as I continued to study that when I realized how much I didn't know, and a funny thing happened to me. My, my relationship with God 
increased. It grew as my certainty about absolutely everything decreased. Sometimes our not knowing is every bit as important as our knowing. There is, there is a profound importance in not knowing. Not knowing would have benefited Saul tremendously at this point in the story. He would, have, he would have benefited from just enough humility to recognize that he might be wrong about something. He might not have it all figured out. To recognize that, that beyond our imagination, there is wonderful, powerful mystery. And God is in that mystery. Later, as I started in ministry, I was so nervous about the idea of not having all the answers. What if a member of the congregation comes to me and, and has a, a deep, important theological question that I don't have the answer to? What am I going to tell them? Or what if they say to me, hey, could you tell me what part of the Bible this story's from because I can't remember? And I can't remember either. Like, I'm, I'll look foolish. I'll look like I don't have things together. I, I'll look like I'm not fit. And I learned, finally, that I don't know is one of the most important answers I can give. I don't know, but let's find out together. I don't have all the answers. I don't know, but I'll process that with you. Right? I don't know, but, but why don't we pray about what a faithful response will be despite our unknowing? I don't know why things happen the way they do, and I don't know why people act the way they do, and I don't know why you're experiencing the hurt you're experiencing, but, but what does our faith tell us is our response. Saul's story is memorable, though, and it's not because of his certainty and it's not because of his unwavering faith. It's remarkable, not because of his grand and heroic conversion. Saul's story is remarkable because Jesus' love for him and redemption of him is remarkable. It's not about Saul. It's about Jesus. Whenever we read Scripture, one of the most important things that we can do is remind ourselves who the hero in the story is. It isn't Saul. It isn't Peter or Samson or David or Solomon or, or Daniel or any other character in Scripture who we might find did something remarkable, it isn't the person, it is their God, because none of them on their own did anything remarkable. But in every story, the hero of the story, God does remarkable things in and through them. The hero is not the person of faith, the hero is their faithful God. And this story is no exception. For all of Saul's faults, he was sincere. His faith was genuine. He believed that what he was doing was pleasing to God. And maybe you've experienced this too. I know I have. Jesus, finding him in his sin, was not content to leave him there. Praise God, he's not content to leave us there. But he invites us out of it and to trust in him alone. Jesus disrupted Saul's life in a tremendous way and called him to view everything in the light of Christ. Saul was made blind. He was made blind in order to see just how blind he had already been. He was made dependent on a follower of Christ who did not exploit Saul's blindness. He didn't use it as an instrument for his own gain. He, he didn't take advantage of him. He didn't cast judgment on him. But he served Jesus faithfully. Brother Saul, he said, I have been sent to you. When I was blind, I thought I had God all figured out, but I actually couldn't see Him at all. It took a major disruption for me to recognize my own blindness. When I had answers to every question and certainty in every response, I was 
given the gift of unknowing, of recognizing that God is bigger than I had imagined. Rather than certainty, I was blessed with an encounter with a God who was far bigger than the stretches of my imagination, and a God who moved in my life from certainty to mystery, and to someone who couldn't be reduced to the limits of my understanding. And finally, I became aware of a God who, who was worth worshiping, a God not made in my image, but a God in whose image I was being remade. The miracle of this passage is not that Saul's mighty faith led him to repent of old ways. The miracle in this passage is the patience of our God who eagerly reconciles even the vilest of sinners, who goes out of his way to make himself known even to the most lost, the very people who have set themselves against him. The miracle of this passage is the vast and far-reaching love of God. And because God loved Saul, Saul was invited to take in new realities. One of my favorite statements, the things I say often, and, and you'll likely hear me repeat, is that the good news is better than we have imagined. The good news of the gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is better than we have imagined, better than we have perceived and understood. When we have made God small, the good news is better than that. And when we have placed limits on God's love and forgiveness, the good news is better than that. When we think we have to clean ourselves up in order to make ourselves worthy or presentable to Him, the good news is better than that. When we are tempted to live according to the strength of our faith rather than the extravagance of God's love, the good news is better than that. Saul was invited to inhale to take in the reality of a God who, who didn't need Saul to kill, to defend, but one instead who offered his life for Saul and who was so eager to be known by Saul that he disrupted Saul's life and revealed his blindness to him and healed his misguided heart. Because what's often true for us is also true for Saul. The good news is better than that better than he had imagined, better than he had guessed. Last week, we distributed prayer journals for the, the Church of the Nazarene's half-million mobilization, a, a prayer emphasis between now and Pentecost. And we have extra copies for anyone who hasn't received one who would like one. They're out at the, the Welcome Center by the, the coffee. And it's such a great way, I think, for us to record prayer over the next several weeks as we, as we journey into Pentecost. And so I want to take you, take, ask you to take advantage of that, but this coming Wednesday on day 11, the prayer reflection is reading from John chapter 15, verse 16, and it says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And what an appropriate passage, I think, for this week is, as we think about Saul, Saul did not choose Jesus. In fact, Saul set himself against Jesus, but despite that, Jesus chose Saul. If we have it in our minds that, that there was something in us already worthy of the salvation that we have been offered in Jesus, that we have received in Him, can we just repent of that now? We were given salvation not because we are worthy. We are invited to know Him, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus chose us, both collectively 
and each one of us individually to receive salvation in Him. And just like Saul, we were chosen for a purpose, to bear fruit that will last. And think of the fruit of Saul, soon to be Paul's ministry. The, the Holy Spirit will work powerfully through Paul because of Paul's willingness, because Paul is a willing vessel. The, the fruit that we bear, it is not our own fruit, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And so I wanted to invite us to pray together this morning that the Lord would forgive us of the ways that we have reduced Him to something that we can fully understand, that He would draw us instead into the mystery of a God who is bigger than we could ever perceive, blessing us with the gift of unknowing, that we might begin to grasp the greatness of God as we peer into the mystery and recognize that we can't even see the, the edges, that the mystery of God stretches well beyond our perception. I want to invite us to pray that God would bear fruit in us, using each of us for the glory of His kingdom, that like Ananias, we would be obedient even when there is risk, and even when there's a cost. And like Saul, we would be obedient even when it requires us to confess that we have been wrong and adopt an entirely new awareness of both the person of God and the world around us. Will you join me this morning in prayer? Holy Lord, it is our blessing to lift up your name together. You are a God who loved us, loves us exactly where you find us. Saul, Saul shows us that our lives don't need to be cleaned up for us to be recipients of your love. We don't need to be fixed in order that you would love us. You love us anyway. Lord, help us to believe that this morning. You are a loving Father. We are your beloved children. But Lord, as you find us in our brokenness, in our sin, you are not content to leave us there. But instead, you offer us healing. You draw us into you. You make us whole. And we praise you. Forgive us, Lord, of the ways that we have reduced you to something that can be fully understood the ways we have boxed you in according to the limits of our imagination and our understanding, help us instead, Lord, lead us into the mystery. Lead us into unknowing, recognizing that you are bigger than we could ever perceive. Help us to find ourselves comfortable, safe, in our unknowing. That doesn't mean we don't pursue you. That means that you are bigger than easy answers. Bigger than we can fully perceive. And Lord, we pray that you would bear fruit in us, using us for the glory of your kingdom, 
We pray that as individuals and we pray that as a church that your spirit would do mighty things in us. That like Ananias, we would be obedient to you even when there is a cost. Even when it seems to put us in danger, that we would go to those who, who have threatened us and call them brother and sister and treat them with love and point them to you. Father, we pray that you would give us Saul's humility, that we would repent of the ways that we have been wrong. for the ways that we have limited you. And give us instead, Lord, missional hearts. And Lord, we think of our own formative experiences. Whether it's a, a tornado or the stoning of Stephen or whatever those formative experiences in our life are, Lord. And if they have pointed us away from a loving God, we pray that you would reframe those experiences in us and reveal yourself to us more fully. That we would pursue you for who you are instead of for how we have perceived you. Heal our hearts, Lord. That we would reflect you more and more. May your spirit bear fruit in us. We love you, Lord. Amen.